If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 12. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather here this evening, and in particular, Lord, as we gather to partake of the Lord's table, Father, we ask that you would once again help us as we think about not only the events that led up to the crucifixion of Christ, but, Father, what all of that means for us as individuals, what it means for the world, and then, Father, what it means for us to partake together of the Lord's table, what it means for us to take of the bread and take of the cup. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have even a better understanding, maybe a more consistent understanding. We pray, Lord, that we would spend some time thinking about what all of this represents, Father, and how it is to affect us as individuals. Not only, Lord, how it affected us in the day that we became believers, but, Father, how it is to continue to affect us as we continue to mature and grow in our faith in Christ. So, as always, Father, we know that you're with us, and so, Father, we ask that you would teach us your word. We pray, Lord, you would help us to do those things that we want to do, which is to grow and to understand. And so, again, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. As the uh, Lord met with his disciples, they were celebrating this meal, this, this Passover, And there's a great deal in this passage, a lot that we can spend time talking about, and we're not going to go through those kinds of details. We're going to use this, again, just to to refresh our minds as to the the background or the foundation of what we gather together to do when we partake of the Lord's table. I want to take some thoughts from that and then move into Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians so that, once again, we at least can make sure that we are thinking about these things correctly and thinking about them as, as we ought to. So the first thing that I want to do is, is, I guess you could almost call it kind of devotional. I don't, if you've ever read um, some, of, some of Spurgeon's devotions or Oswald Chambers, sometimes what they do is they'll, they'll take a passage or a verse and then they, it's almost like they just start thinking out loud. You know, this reminds me of this, and they kind of go through some things. And I, I had this thought, and I had that thought. And it's all related to the passage, but it's not necessarily exegeting the passage itself. It's kind of along the lines of, this is, this is how this can shape our thinking. This is how this may affect our life. You know, think of it in this way. Think of it in that way. You know, that, the idea is to kind of saturate your mind with the Word of God and really kind of expand 
the, the various ways that it can affect us um, in the way that we view life, in the way that we understand life. So the first thing is that when you read through this passage in Exodus, it is clear that, because God says that, that the Passover meal was eaten in haste. They were to have their loins girded. They were to have their staff in hand. Basically, they were to be ready to go. And as I was thinking about that, um, you know, I was looking at a passage in Hebrews. In Hebrews, there's this long discussion about entering into the Lord's rest. We're not going to get into all of that. That'd take, that would take several weeks just to kind of decipher all of that and what he's talking about, about entering the Lord's rest, but you, you haven't entered the Lord's rest yet, but we look forward to the Lord's rest and all those kinds of things. But I came across a comment by Raymond Brown about that, about entering into, into rest. And part of the idea there is that, you know, when we come to Christ for salvation, we're no longer striving to earn points with God. We're no longer striving to earn his favor because we can't. And so we rest in what God has done. Uh, and that's, that's part of the idea when, when it comes to what he's talking about there in Hebrews. And so thinking of that and thinking of what was going on at Passover and what we do when we gather together for the Lord's table, he said this uh, about Hebrews chapter 4. He says, the imagery of rest is not necessarily helpful when describing God's work of present sanctification in the life of the believer. Now, I'll I'll just pause there, because the reason why this caught my eye is because what we do when we gather together as believers, that's all part of what God is doing in our life as far as the work of sanctification. On one hand, we are sanctified. We've been set apart by God, and so we, we use it in the past tense. I've been sanctified. But along with that, we also know that we are pursuing sanctification. God is sanctifying us, or he is making us more holy. And the idea is that I want to pursue the Christian life. I want to pursue holiness. I want to continue to mature as a believer. Uh, and so uh, he talks about that here uh, in, in the idea of, of present sanctification or the work of sanctification in the life of the believer. And that the word rest is not the word that you want to uh, use or connect to that when it comes to that. He goes on and says, In the Christian life, it is not let go and let God. It is never taught in Scripture that in order to advance in sanctification, the Christian has only to relax every nerve and abandon any thought of moral struggle. It is true that no believer can hope to achieve his own sanctification, no matter how hard he tries. It is God's work to make us holy. But neither can any Christian hope to be conformed to the likeness of Christ in his everyday life simply by making sure that he does nothing about it. It is a strenuous, costly business to be a Christian. Believers must strive to enter the rest of the people of God. The word used here, enter, describes the intense concentration of energy necessary to reach a desired goal. It demands everything we have got, but always with a clear recognition that every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone. The very desire to live our best for Christ is an ambition. He, it is an ambition that he has placed or planted in our minds. Unbelievers care nothing for such things. So as I was reading through that and thinking about uh, the Passover meal and what they were doing, and what we do when we gather together to partake of the Lord's table, uh, I think that we should have in the same sense Uh, our loins girded and our staff in hand. In other words, when we partake of communion, we know that this is not the final act. We still have to live tomorrow, and the day after that, and the week after that, and the month after that. 
It is not the final act. There is still much more to come. Great adventures lie ahead for us, as it did for the people of Israel. They wanted to rest from their weariness uh, that was brought on from their bondage, and so do we. But it is not the time to slumber. And so the idea then with that is that when we partake of this, it is not that we just are coming and we're kind of resting and, you know, we, we have come to the apex, so to speak, of the Christian life. And from here on out, it's easy or somehow we don't really have to be concerned about those things. But the idea is to kind of have a future look about our lives as Christians and the partaking of this. Uh, we are to think about what they did. And even though God was delivering them from bondage, there was now work ahead. There was a journey ahead. And so they were... Uh, they weren't slumbering when they did this, but they were getting ready to move ahead. And so that was just kind of an idea uh, that I thought that perhaps that we should keep in our minds when it comes to that. The second thing is, is that we recognize when you read through this passage that the Passover was eaten in safety. In other words, you know, they had, uh, as they fellowship together as believers, they were under the protection of the blood of Christ or the blood of the Lamb in, this, in, in the Old Testament. In other words, the angel of death was going to come. And there was no need for them to be in fear. As they ate that meal, they were in complete safety because uh, the coming judgment was not going to affect them. The same idea when you and I eat of the bread and drink of the wine as we partake of the Last Supper together, we know that we can do so in safety. We're not facing a judgment. No matter how many sins you are reminded of when you partake of communion, you are not going to be judged or condemned for those sins. Christ has paid the penalty. He has been punished for your sins. It is never the case that we take our sin lightly, but at the same time, it is not that we somehow judge ourselves condemned when God doesn't condemn us. The scriptures clearly tell us that we are no longer condemned as believers. And we need to embrace that. And so uh, as we partake of the Lord's table, we need to remind ourselves that we do so in safety because this is reminding us of the coming judgment of God on non-believers and our judgment has passed because it has already been um, executed upon Christ himself. Related to that, and thirdly is, is that God delivered his children from the wrath of darkness, from the wrath uh, and the danger of death. So not only do we actually eat in safety, we are actually delivered from the wrath to come because of the shed blood of Christ. Those individuals, are, you know, sometimes it's difficult to imagine, but I think it's, it's at times helpful for us to imagine certain things. Try to imagine being in a town, a city, whatever kind of a place that you're living in, but imagine what it would be like if tonight the firstborn male in every family, suddenly died. What would the mood of our city be like this evening and tomorrow? There would be absolute fear. There would be chaos. It would be, it would be unbelievable what it would be like. You know, I used to think about this when I was a kid, and they would go through the Passover. I thought about, well, you know, who in our family would be dead? Well, my dad would die, and I would die. My dad was the firstborn in his family. I was the firstborn in my family. Uh, my dad's dad would have been dead because he was the firstborn in his family. Trying to kind of personalize it and imagine what would that be like for, for individuals that are caught up in that. And even for those who have been passed over, you would still think there would be almost maybe a sense of apprehension, absolute gratefulness that the angel of death has passed over. 
but maybe a sense of apprehension because it's a, suddenly all of reality is hitting you square in the face. God wasn't messing around. There is an end to his patience. There is a judgment that is coming. Death is out there. No one is going to be able to escape except by the plan that God has given, by the path of delivery that he has given to his children. That's just kind of a a startling thing to think about. So we're able to partake of this in safety, and along with that, reminding ourselves that we have been delivered again from the second death. We've been delivered from that. And so there's no need for us to have any fear. And then thirdly, I mean fourthly, we know that the Egyptians and their land, they were severely judged by God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, reads this way, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So once again, because the theme of all of this is there is judgment, the Egyptians and their land, they were severely judged. Again, we're reminded that there is a judgment that is coming. There's actually several judgments that the Bible speaks about. And there's a judgment that's coming. And those who do not know the Lord are not going to escape that. It is a, a fearful thing. And here he gives us this warning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so again, that judgment is going to take place. So when we partake of the Lord's table, maybe um, if you're talking to someone else about that, you can talk about that aspect of it, that that. When the Passover took place, it was in the midst of God judging a land. You may not be aware of this or remember this, but when you go through the various plagues that God visited upon Egypt, you may have heard that each one of those plagues was was a plague against a specific deity that that the Egyptians worshipped. In each of those cases, God was certainly showing that the God of Israel was the one supreme God. That there is no God of the Nile, there is no God of this, there is no God of that, there's one God. And whatever gods they were crying out to or pleading to, no matter what they had their priests do, it didn't matter what God said would happen, took place. There was plenty of evidence to those Egyptians that the God of Israel was the one and true God. That whatever they were worshiping, was, could not hold a candle to the real God of Israel. There was time for them to repent. A few did, most didn't. And the land was going to be judged. The same thing is true for our country and for the world. The Bible makes it clear that all men know that God is. They know that. And there are many different proofs that we can read through in Romans chapter 1, that manifest themselves throughout the world in various aspects of creation or in social structures or in man's sense of justice, whatever it happens to be, there's all this evidence out there that man should clearly understand. He has the ability to understand that God does exist. And, as it goes on to say, that man knows that God is angry about sin. And there's going to be judgment. It's coming. It's going to take place. They saw it happen to the Egyptians. They saw it happen to those people. There was time for them to repent, and they did not. But again, it took place, and it's coming. And then, of course, the last thing, which 
which is really a simple thing. And that is, fifthly, the children of God or the children of Israel, numerically, they were a minority in the land of Egypt. And we know that numerically in this land, we are a minority. True believers in this country are a minority. True believers throughout the world are a minority. Even if there is 2 billion believers, there's almost 7 billion. Maybe there are already 7 billion people on the earth, so we're still less than half. I don't know how many believers there are. I don't know if there's a way to really know or even come close to what the real number may be. So whether it's 2 billion or 1.5 billion or whatever it happens to be, it's a minority. So it's just a, it's, it's not a big thing. It, it, that's the way that it is and the way that it's going to be until the Lord returns. But if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read to you what Paul wrote, just some of the simple instructions. And we, we want to take a look at what the Lord's table is and what it is not. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, many of the things that we lift out of this passage are things that we are really familiar with. Some of these things we really don't have to spend much time on at all, but just kind of say the word to remind us. But once again, it is clear that one of the reasons that we are told to do this is we are to do this as a memorial. We are to do this to remember Christ and what Christ has done. To remember what it costs for our salvation. I think the best way to put it is is that we partake of communion so that we don't forget. And when I say don't forget, I don't mean in the sense that somehow intellectually that we're no longer going to remember that this actually happened in history. It's not in that sense. But it's in the sense that What Christ did for us is to carry a great deal of weight in our life. It has a big impact on us, which which we know. Because we are, in a sense, very familiar with it. You know, we hear about the gospel on a regular basis. We read about the gospel. We sing about the gospel. We talk about the gospel among ourselves. Uh, When we share the gospel with others, or when we're thinking about non-believers and how they get saved, we think about the gospel, we rehearse it. So we're, in that sense, really familiar with it. And so there's a tendency, because we are human beings, that because we're so familiar with it, we begin to either take it lightly or kind of take it for granted. Um, not Not that we intend to do that, but it just becomes almost a common thing. And so the Lord has given this to us, So that it never becomes a common thing. We are to think about what these things represent. That that Jesus had a very real body that experienced pain and suffering. And then we are to remind ourselves that as he experiences pain and suffering, he didn't deserve any of that. 
He had never done anything wrong against anyone. He had never violated any of God's laws. He was innocent in every way that we understand the word innocent. And he was truly innocent. It wasn't that he was arrested for one thing and beaten for it and he was innocent of that, but he was actually guilty of other things he never got caught for. No, he was innocent across the board. And so we are to be reminded of those things. We are to think about those things as we gather together. And of course, the, uh, it culminates in the fact that he then laid his life down. Because uh, what we are thinking about is that he died. He died so that I could live. He died so that you could live. That's no small thing that he did for us. So this is then a memorial, um, and the word remembrance is used in the New King James a couple of times. It also is a symbol. It's, it's symbolic, and we've, we kind of refer to that a great deal. Um, it's, it's an act of examination, and we're going to get to that in more detail in a moment. But it's an act of obedience, because he said to his disciples to take and eat this, take and drink this. It was an imperative that he was giving them. He wasn't giving them an option. He was telling them, this is, I want you to do this. And then, of course, we see later on in, in um, uh, Corinthians here where, where Paul is writing, that he, he's writing to the Corinthians as if this is what you're going to be doing. This is what we do. We get together and we do this thing. And, and so it is an act of obedience uh, to Christ. That's why we do this. Um, it is an act of belief. Let me read to you from the Amplified Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. And remember that when we read the Amplified, it does add extra words um, to the verses. And the goal of that is to amplify the meaning of what is being communicated. So verses 16 and 17, it reads this way. The cup of blessing of wine at the Lord's Supper, upon which we ask God's blessing, does it not mean that in drinking it we participate in and share a fellowship or a communion In the blood of Christ the Messiah? The bread which we break. Does it not mean that in eating it we participate in and share a fellowship or a communion in the body of Christ? For we, no matter how numerous we are, are one body. Because we all partake of one bread. The one whom the communion bread represents. So the idea then is as as we partake together, it is an act of belief. What what we are saying is, is that we believe what these things symbolize. What these things symbolize is what actually took place, which again is not only that Jesus was put to death, but it's the why he was put to death. It was how all those things transpired. So it is an act of belief. That's why, again, we encourage believers to partake of communion. That's why we sometimes, or sometimes, maybe it's often that I make statements that the partaking of communion does not save anyone. An unsaved person does not partake of communion, and then because they partake of it, they're now saved. That doesn't happen. That will never take place. That's not how that works. So the idea is, is that we are declaring what we believe. So then if we see someone who takes communion, we have the right to assume that individual is a believer and then hold them accountable for being a believer, for living as a believer, for acting as a believer. That's why it's important that, you know, when when it comes to our children, that you don't allow your children just to take because they want to be like you. We don't want them just to take because everyone else is taking. We want them to approach it with the same seriousness. And for uh, for most of them, the way that they approach it seriously is hands off. 
because of what it represents. It's not that it's magical. It's not that they, if they spill the cup, that means they spilt the blood of Jesus. A lot of individuals have done a lot of harm to their kids by exaggerating what's going on with that and making it some kind of a spooky, mystical thing. We don't, we don't need to do that with them. But we do need to uh, instill in them that it's a very somber time. That is, that is a great deal of seriousness to this. Now, this is not about looking around and seeing what else is taking and giggling because I get to do it and you don't get to do it or whatever it happens to be. Uh, the idea is that, that um, we are taking these things and we are proclaiming, we are proclaiming as one what we believe. We are proclaiming or we are announcing his death. Not just that he died in history. We are proclaiming the theological aspects of his death. That he died for our sin. We are proclaiming that he was buried according to the scriptures. We're proclaiming that. We are proclaiming that he rose again from the dead. And we're also proclaiming that he's going to return again. So when someone asks us, why do you do that? We can say, well, it's the way that we declare what we believe. And this is what we believe. And it gets you right into the gospel. He, said, he told the disciples that when they drank, it was, it was the covenant of his blood. So it is an act of covenant. It is an act of uniformity, again, as it says there in 1 Corinthians 10. And that's why when we pass the elements, we, we, all, we all pause when the bread is passed and we take it together. It doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong if other groups do it differently. I just don't, I don't think it's best because it's not an individual thing. It's a we thing. It's a collective thing. It's always us uh, that are doing it. Those, the assembled uh, body of believers, we are doing these things together. So that's why I don't like it. You know, even, even some would have you line up and you all come up, you know, and you may take the bread and, and the, you know, and the cup and all those type of things. Yeah, I mean, they can do that, I guess. It's America. Uh, but I think they're missing out on what is supposed to be taking place with all of that. So communion then, with the Lord's table, is at the same time both very personal, very individual, but always in community. Right? We examine ourselves. We want to make sure that we're not taking in an unworthy manner. We want to make sure that we are thinking of these things as individuals, but also we are doing this together. We are all doing this together. We've set this time aside for all of us to be thinking about this. And that's a powerful testimony to, to the non-believer. It's a powerful testimony to maybe those who are uh, not very mature in the faith to see that. It might be encouraging to those who are experiencing weakness in the faith is to look around and see how many are there together partaking of communion because of what it means, because of what we are declaring. That, and, and that it's, you know, it's a very, you know, one of those very solid theological things that we're letting others know about. And then, of course, there's the prophetic element to it, and that is, is that we're doing this until he comes. We all know that we are doing this together now until he comes again. And so we emphasize that he is going to return. That aspect of Christianity, there's a lot of aspects of Christianity, I guess, that make some people kind of uncomfortable or embarrassed. That's one of them. This idea that, that Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. In one, on one hand, it's, I don't see how that's a big deal. If Jesus really is God, which he is, uh, God can pretty much do whatever he wants. So if he says to come back again, that, that's, you know what, I believe that. He's going to return. But the world who doesn't believe in God wants to squash all the information, wants to mock that. I say, wait a minute, so you believe not only did he come back from the dead, but somehow he floated off into space and he's been living there for all these years and now he's going to float back? I mean, they're going to say it in all kinds of ways to try to mock us, which is fine. Don't, don't get all upset, you know? That's, it's the truth. A, he didn't go up there and he's not floating in space. 
We know exactly where he went. He's sitting on the right-hand side of the Father. That's where he's at. And he's going to be returning again. And, uh, and we don't believe that because we read it in some kind of a, a novel. We don't believe that because some guy made that up one day. We believe it because we have the historical record of what he said, what God has preserved for us, uh, so that we would know what to believe and know what to expect and know what to look forward to. Again, according to the scriptures, which are, again, the final authority of faith and practice. So it's not what is convenient. It's not what the world may like. It's not what is embarrassing or not embarrassing. The final authority for our faith is Scripture. And that is what the Scripture says. And that's what we go by. That's what we anchor in. The Lord's Supper then also is not a sacrament in the strict sense of the term. I know some people may still use that term. And they may not mean uh, it in the way that it's normally meant. But I think it's best not to use that term. Because... uh, Again, if it was a sacrament, that, that would then mean somehow it conveys some kind of magical grace. There's no, it's not, there's no magical grace. Nothing's going to, you're not going to be infused with anything by God. I do believe that, that God is gracious to us because as we partake together, we are encouraged. That's God's grace. So God's involved in every aspect of it. But it's not because you partake of it, God then, and I, I'm not trying to make fun of those who believe it's a sacrament, but... God is not going to zap you with grace. It's not going to be like that. So it's not a sacrament in that sense. There's no um, in, in, you know, infusion of, of, of some kind of magical grace. There's no mystery to it in any way. It is simply a symbol, a teaching. We can even say it's an acted out parable. Some have used it. I'm not really sure I like that too much, but some use that term. Uh, it would be a dramatization of Christian history, which it is. Uh, it's a Christian experience, it's Christian fellowship, it's Christian hope, uh, it is sincere, it, it is, uh, we have an intelligent participation in it, and that brings about a spiritual blessing. So again, remember that there is an intelligent participation. We are not doing this with blindfolds on. We're not doing this as dumb sheep who don't know what they're doing. We are very much actively thinking about what it is. We don't just blindly take, at least we should never do that. We don't just partake because the plate passes in front of us. Uh, we, are, we are willfully choosing to do this in memory of what Christ has said and in obedience to what he has said. And we are engaged in thinking about what we are declaring as well as, uh, as we'll get to in a moment, we've examined our life. We also don't hold to what the Roman Catholics teach, which is that on the Lord's table, the bread and wine are actually at some point changed into the very flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, that does not happen, period. And of course, I think if you just read through the New Testament, read through the Gospels, you can just ask yourself a simple question. How could Jesus, sitting at the table with the twelve, give them his actual body to eat? It was symbolic at the very first Lord's Supper. Because he was alive, he hadn't been crucified yet. It was all symbolic then. When did that suddenly change? It never changed. Not at all. He said the words, this is my body. That is a figure of speech. He was saying this represents my body. It can't mean anything else. A.T. Robertson, Robinson, who wrote a, several, a, a few books on, on the Greek language and some word studies and whatnot, he says this, and I'll just read this to you. He says, the phrase, this is my body. Then he says, grammar, rhetoric, Syntax, logic, and common sense compel this copula is 
to express the relation of analogy and not identity between the subject and the predicate of this sentence. And I would say what he said. (laughs) That's a mouthful. But the idea is he just looks at the language and says, based on the language, this is what this must be. And again, it's important because God has communicated to us in language because language does communicate clearly the things that God wants us to understand. So again, the Lord's uh, Supper, according to the New Testament then, is not a sacrament. It's not a means of grace. It does not save anyone. It doesn't keep anyone saved. And it doesn't make them more savable. Uh, Also, it is not necessarily to be observed daily, weekly, or monthly. There are those who believe in the New Testament that the practice was daily, uh, um, because there was that phrase, as often as you drink it. So there are those who think that the early church did it every day. There are those who think they did it every week. There's all kinds of discussions about that. Um, I don't really fall down on a hard side with those things. I, you know, I'm, I kind of go back and forth when I read through the arguments, um, but I'm still definitely not on the side that it's daily. Um, because if it was, we would have to change what we do, because we'd have to follow the pattern of Scripture. But when it comes to the Lord's table, uh, I want to say a couple of things about self-examination. Number one, the believer, which again, who's a born-again member of a local church, should conduct a self-examination before observing it. We read that uh, in the text here in 1 Corinthians 11, is in verse 28. We are to examine our lives. This self-examination should always be in light of God's word. Right? It's, not just, it's not just, you know, you say, well, I feel guilty, I must have done something wrong. It's never that. We, we examine our lives in light of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so I examine my life in light of what the Word of God says. And the Word of God describes a great deal as to how we are to treat each other, uh, the attitudes we are to have, um, how we are to deal with our sin. So there is not this idea, I want to make sure we're we're clear on this, it's never the idea that we approach the Lord's table thinking that we have at least gotten ourselves to a point that we're clear of all sin. That's not what he's dealing with. Because we'll never get there. If you start doing that, then you're going to get caught up in this idea of, well, what if I've confessed my sins, but while they're passing out the bread, I have a bad thought? And that just never ends. All right? That's not what he's getting at. The idea really, I think, is best is that, number one, we are not partaking of it uh, in a way that we are, we are misrepresenting it. In other words, thinking that I'm earning points with God, that I'm going to be saved, or that even the taking of communion is going to forgive me. So we want to make sure we're taking of it properly, thinking of the right things. Number two, that we are at least striving for holiness and seeking to deal with our sin. So if there's sin in your life that you're not dealing with, then you probably shouldn't take. If you've been holding a grudge against someone in your family for several years, you don't need to be taking communion. However... It's also another sin if you don't deal with that grudge that you're holding. You, as a believer, you have to deal with that. You don't have a choice. You are living in sin if, you, if you're not dealing with that. So it's not that we have conquered all of our sins suddenly. It's not that we now enter into a brief moment where there's this little window that we can step into where we are now sinless. It's not that. But we are at least dealing with our sin according to what the Word of God says. We are seeking to live in obedience, knowing... That while we are in the flesh, we will never be sinless. 
though we should sin less and less as we grow as believers, but, but I, I, will, I will leave it at that because we do not want to get into, well, what does that really mean, sin less and less? You know, how do we count sin? We're not going there. We're just, we're just dealing with the basic general direction of our lives. And I think that for most individuals, they have a pretty good handle on what that is. If there's some sin you've been holding on to, that usually pops into your mind. In fact, you might be thinking about it right now. You already, you already know exactly what I'm talking about. If there's someone you haven't forgiven or, or something you're not dealing with, you already know what that is. You don't even have to ask God to show you. You already know. And you have to deal with that. It's important. Self-examination, self-examination then not only should be according to the word of God, but also should be done in a very prayerful way. In Psalm 139, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So the celebration of the Lord's Supper was uh, still held uh, by many in the early church to be something that they did every Sunday. And so I want to to, uh, read you something that that came from the pen of Justin Martyr, where he talks about the whole church partook of the communion after they joined in the amen of, of this one prayer that was given. The deacons carried the bread and the wine to everyone present in order. It was held to be necessary that all the Christians in the place should, by participating in this communion, maintain their union with the Lord and with his church. And hence, the deacons carried a portion of the consecrated bread and wine even to the sick and to the prisoners who were unable to be in attendance and to all who were prevented from being present at the assembly. So... Uh, during the time of just a martyr, what they would do, they took this so seriously, is that if, so if there were those who were ill that could not attend, they would take the communion to them. And from some of the things that I've read, uh, it wasn't like just where one deacon would go, there'd be a small group. And the idea was, is that, well, we're the body of Christ. And so they, they would go and then celebrate communion with that individual. And again, they would take it to those who were sick, those who were imprisoned, and those kinds of things. Because they practice it every week, in fact, for the first two centuries, um, uh, they practiced every, it seemed that every church practiced every week. Uh, they believed that communion was obligatory. So then if you miss Sunday, Sunday morning worship for three consecutive Sundays, you were automatically eligible for excommunication. So they took that real serious. Because, again, what it symbolizes, and part of what I didn't say, is it sim- which was mentioned here in this uh, little uh, quip from Justin Martyr, is it also symbolized the oneness we have in Christ, which is why we all take together, and the oneness we have with each other. Because we are one with each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's why we, again, do this together, because we are related. And again, those are all the things that we are declaring. So with all that being said, when we get ready this evening, which would be in about three minutes, <laughs> to partake of communion, all of those things should be in your mind. It's not to be some overwhelming thing. It's something that we should do on our, on our, in a our very natural way. Because of our walk with the Lord, it's easy for us to think about the gospel. We know the gospel. We know the history. Some of us may be more in detail than others, but we know the history of what happened when Christ was arrested, when he went on trial, how he was beat, how he was crucified, how he was buried, and how he rose again. And we should be thinking of those things in relationship to the fact that he did those things so that I could be saved. In fact, Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's what we are to emphasize. And then we want to make sure that we're not, we haven't allowed ourselves to think that somehow, you know, we're going to get something from God for doing this. 
Okay, we're, not, we're not getting anything from God. This is for our benefit, not to receive from God some kind of prize, but this is to encourage us, to encourage our souls, to encourage each other. And then, of course, as we think about this, we want to make sure then that there is no sin, that we are acting as real children of God, and that we take all of our sin very seriously. And if there is something, whether it's one or maybe it's several things, whatever it happens to be, if there's some sin that you're not even dealing with. So if you're struggling with sin, that's great. It's a sign of life. Bring your struggles to the Lord. But sometimes there are those of us where there is no struggle. That's a problem. And that's when we need to uh, uh, spend some time with the Lord. And again, the, the whole point of that is not just to, to skip communion the next three times that we have it because somehow there's this pious idea why well, I haven't quite dealt with everything. You need to get on the stick and deal with those things. It may not be perfectly, but you cannot leave those things undone because the Lord takes those things and wants us to take those things very, very seriously. So I'm going to pray. When I finish, I ask the men to come up. Uh, and we will partake of, of the Lord's table. But let's uh, go ahead and, and prepare our hearts now. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this evening, Father, we pray that you would help us to approach your table in the right way. Father, it is an amazing thing as far as what all that it represents. And, and Lord, to think that all that it represents is also related to me as an individual. And is related to each one here who is saved as an individual. That, that these things that were done back in history were done on our behalf. They were done for us. They were done for our sake. Yes, we know that Jesus died to fulfill the justice of God. But Lord, this was done and the justice of God was fulfilled so that we then could be saved. That we then could experience your mercy. That your grace would be applied to our lives. Father, we know that we will never be able to thank you enough. And Father, we thank you that there's not some measurement of gratefulness that we have to achieve before we can partake of the Lord's table. Father, we're just we're grateful. And it goes beyond what words to describe. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to remember Christ, to remember what was done, to remember what the Scripture says about what was done and what it means as well as what it means for us as individuals. I pray, Lord, that if anyone here has any undealt with sin, that, Father, that you bring that to their memory, even now, and they would resolve within themselves to deal with that issue before we gather together again at your table. Father, we ask that you would prevent us from taking in an unworthy way, that we would never mock what's taking place here, and the Father, again, we recognize that this is not going to somehow cause us to be more spiritual in your eyes. And that it's not going to earn us any points with you in any way. At the same time, though, Lord, we'll be encouraged. And I pray that each one here this evening who partakes together, that they will truly be encouraged in their walk with the Lord as we recognize and understand that we together are declaring what we believe, what we know to be true, and that as those who have all together experienced the grace of God, 
all partake together, raising the bread and the cup and also bowing our hearts before you as one, one in Christ and one in fellowship with each other. And so, Father, we thank you again for your presence this evening. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.